This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We love having great advertisers support our show, but in order to continue doing that, we need your help. So please go to podsurvey.com slash riot and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. That way we can show advertisers just how great our listeners are. Even if you've taken our show's podcast listener survey before, the current one is new and different. So please, please do us the favor and take it all over again. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash riot, R-I-O-T. Thanks again for your help. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 198. We're recording on Friday, February 24th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. So we got a, a bunch of quick follow-up things. So you heard a pre-roll for a survey from the mid-roll, which they do a lot of our advertising. So mm-hmm. actually, the rest of our sponsors today, Third Love, Madison Reed, we get Casper, Audible comes for them. Just so you know, um, they're asking listeners to do a survey. There'll be a link in the show notes, so you can listen into the thing Rebecca said too, but also look in the description, and I'll put it in there. You can just click on it, go take it. Really would help us out a lot. Um, people ask us sometimes what they can do to support the show, and I'm like, you're doing it by listening, but this is the special case when another click in a thing would actually help us get some nice advertising and, and keep the ball rolling. So thank you so much for listening, and if you're willing to do that, I uh, really do appreciate that too. Also, the episode 198 reminded me, in two weeks, we're going to do some Ask Us Anything, answer listener questions in celebration of our 200th episode. Have a couple already in the hopper. I haven't shared that with Rebecca yet. Everything's kosher so far, nothing crazy. Um, but if you want to ask us something, podcast at bookriot.com. If we have enough for a whole show, we'll do a whole show. If it's just a segment, just a segment. But um, speak now or forever hold your questions. Uh, I guess the last follow-up is we're record- we've, we've done three episodes of Better Living Through Books now, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Three. And two of them um, are up. The next one's going to be Monday as well. And I had, I had someone email and said, I'm worried about O'Neill's razor because it was like 12 <laughs> days between the first one and the second one. I was like, I totally feel you on this. Um, there was a delay because we have to submit to iTunes to make sure people can subscribe. But our plan is for them to come out weekly. We record them right around the time we record this show. And they get put into the same editing stream with my brother. That So we're planning on once a week. So I think you can jump in now. Yes, um, you should you're, be able to be fine. Yeah, you should be able to jump in now. And on that note, we are going to be traveling next week oh, for yes, some planning right. meetings for the, what's what we're going to do next with the Good Ship yeah. Book Riot. So next week's podcast may be a day or two late. If you don't see it yeah. Monday morning, don't panic. There will be one. It'd be a good time to get, catch up with Better Living Through Books if you have something you need to listen to on Monday. If only we had thought show. of that and could have like done it on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. We can say we can we just say it was on purpose. Totally. Is that fair? So we're releasing Better Living Through Books on Monday. Yeah, so you'll, you'll have something, something to listen to. Listen to. <laughs> yeah, because we knew you'd be, you'd miss us, and you know, people. I'm like this with podcasts too. Like, there's a couple mm-hmm. of shows. There's this one show I listen to that it comes out bi-weekly ish. You know, and then this like is that ish is like. Enough. It just, it's a little, you know, if it's 16, 17 days since the last one, I, I start to, I don't know, I start to feel something. 
that I don't like you it. You start to feel oh, something. I, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, unusual for you, know, you, I know. That is, that's true. Yeah. It gets under my um, um, uh, Adonai's exterior. Uh, to the bottom. Uh, let's do our first sponsor. All right, want, so, want to tell yeah, us about the first as sponsor. Jeff mentioned, Third Love is back today. Uh, Third Love is an incredible new maker of women's bras and other things. And what we're talking about today is that women change bra sizes an average of six times in our lives. I'm sure that you can think of some of the reasons that that might happen. Uh, and finding the perfect fitting bra can make all the difference for your comfort, for feeling good about the way you look in your clothes. Thankfully, Third Love bras were developed using thousands of real women's measurements. So they have a huge size range from AA to G cups, also including half cup sizes. So if you've been hard to fit, uh, like at Victoria's Secret or some of the traditional lingerie shops, Third Love may have a better option for you. No matter your body shape, you're sure to find a fit that's right. And with Third Love's Fit Finder, it only takes 30 seconds to determine the best size and the best style for your body. I've used this Fit Finder before. I've mentioned it on previous shows. It really is simple. You are probably going to find out that you're wearing the wrong size bra. Uh, that's just the way things are. Uh, so what are you waiting for? Say goodbye to slipping straps, to side overflow, and all the rest. Try Third Love today. Third Love stands behind their products so much that they're willing to let our listeners try any bra from the 24-7 collection for free. Those are the bras that are meant to be super comfortable. You can wear them all day long. I have a few of them. I can vouch for this. You're just going to pay $2.99 for shipping. You take the tags off. You wear it. You wash it. Live in the bra the way that you you know wear all of your other bras. Make sure it's your new fave. Then if you love it, you keep it. They'll charge your card. If you don't love it, you can send it back for free and your card will not be charged. So go to Third thirdlove.com slash bookriot to get started. That's thirdlove.com slash bookriot, and you'll get a free 30-day trial with any bra from the 24-7 collection. Okay. Um, so I got follow-up. Um, we, the, uh, the, you know, the, the ebook pricing scandal, you know, that's, that's <laughs> gripped America, <laughs> has many... Eat. There's many tentacles, and we're just now beginning to peel the, the suckers away from this um, this uh, this octopod. Oh, uh, what this, fraught times we live this in! This nefarious um, <laughs> shellless mollusk that is the ebook pricing situation we live in. Um, and I got a I, people now tweet at me when they see uh, or email us when they see scandalous ebook pricing situations, <laughs> which I, I'm both grateful and fulfilled and um, uh, viscerally angry. I'm just so angry about it. You have made and your brand. I guess, and angry about um, book stuff on the internet. Whatever. I'm 85 years old. What do you want from me? Um, and today's installment is about YA ebook pricing, which is I don't read YA except for, I mean, the things that then become pop culture, right? Like Hunger Games or whatever else it might be. But like, I'm not a rank and file daily, regular consumer of YA. So I, when I was really doing my first salvo of um, investi- investigative Googling uh, on ebook pricing, YA didn't bubble up. But have some people recently email me or t- tweet at me about, if you think it's bad for adult books, look at YA. And as soon as I saw that, I knew what they were talking about. Do you know why it's worse, Rebecca? You can probably think of why. You can't. I don't have to leave you. Well, no, I, I was doing maybe, math about like the typical yeah. price of a YA. Well, that, you're on the right tip. Like seventeen ninety nine, right? Right. For a YA is like the, the, is the sticker price for a YA hardcover. Well, you see the problem, right? You get any kind of discount, and then you're starting to run up against the floor of that twelve, eleven ninety nine, twelve ninety nine, thirteen ninety nine, fourteen ninety nine. Even because they're, they're starting with a lower, lower the ceiling price. is lower on yeah. YA hardcovers. 
So um, it came out a couple. I mean, one of the big YA releases of this I, February is still winter, right? In book world parlance, sure, yes, is that right? yes, yeah. it is. So winter YA is the the King's Cage, which is the third installment in Victoria Aviard's. I guess that's how you say it. Um, sorry, uh, Red Queen series came out a couple weeks ago, February seventh, and so a lot of people are talking about it. They've done some advertising for it. They haven't done with us for this one, but anyway, there was it was on book right deals, and people were buying that. I could see just in the in what people were buying is out there. Kindle price twelve ninety nine on Amazon. Hardcover price twelve sixteen. That, that's tough. Man. That, that, is that, tough. Is, that, that is tough. That is tough. That oh now we're, okay. I see we have a. Con- it wasn't scandalous before, but I'm this out, is what well, it did. I it. mean, my outrage is sort of uh, it's it ebbs and flows about yeah, ebook right. pricing. I'm not as consistently angry yeah, about it as sure, you are. Yeah. But uh, that's my secret. Just, I'm always angry. You right? just that's you just thing. fired up my outrage. Right. I mean, that's pretty bad. That's a new it release. Twelve sixteen for a hardcover. That's tough. I mean, I, I don't know. I, that's just another. I mean, this is the worst so far because the, I looked at a bunch of YA hardcovers that are new, and it, they're all like this. Um, and I don't. This might have been. For all I know, this has gone on for a while. And why? Maybe this is something that people that really live in the YA universe and buy Kindle or hardcovers are doing some side of comparative shopping. I really used to, but um, eighty cents cheaper for a hardcover is tough. That's tough. Mm-hmm. That's tough. And. I try not to get upset just about YA hardcover pricing in general, I, or that YA hardcover pricing makes me angry about adult hardcover right. pricing. <laughs> it's all these delicate dominoes that fall. Well, I mean, the, the anger's right below the surface, mm-hmm. so you don't have to scratch with, with too sharp a nail um, to get the blood flowing, but why, why, why is it eighteen? Why is it seventeen ninety nine? It's almost like publishers don't want ebooks to succeed. No, I, I'd take that out for a minute. Well, oh, okay. But why, but why is it eight? Why is it seventeen ninety nine? If I go see Hunger Games at the movie, it's not like four bucks cheaper. Well, like this is the thing that I, the piece of this that I don't understand, right? Is that like producing a hardcover book costs the same amount of money. Yeah. Like pres- I would think to make a 400 page book, whether it happens to be a book that contains words intended for adults or words intended for mm-hmm. young adults, but especially like in the grand age of twilight and Harry Potter and kids reading series in which every installment was like five or 700 pages long. Right. It, it's not any less expensive to produce those YA hardcovers. Harry so Potter I guess and the Cursed Child was twenty nine ninety nine yeah, sticker and price. There's like a weird if someone who knows the things could yes. let us know, that would be extremely useful. But the assumption that I'm making is that there's a weird like implicit value judgment of like that a young adult book is worth less and therefore you should have to pay less for it, even if it costs the same to produce as an adult book. I mean the generous reading is that kids have less money, right? I mean, that would be the, but, you know, like, they don't have as much. And I, oh, I know. I'm just saying, like, that is, you could say. But you I'm could. saying, like, in video games, in movies, in whatever, you know, pop music, in uh, sync CDs weren't right. $7 cheaper than no. Metallica, you know, or whatever, whatever you want to use. But, like, this is some weird lacuna in the, the pricing of adolescent pop culture documents and, and materials that, like, I don't know if this is a historical artifact, but I don't mind. Why, keep seventeen ninety nine. Great, good for YA readers. Sure, right. But, but it makes that twenty seven ninety nine for Lincoln and the Bardo really tricky. Yeah, it does. I mean, well, I don't know. It really does. And that you know, like I've I am a longtime hardcover buyer. Um, mm-hmm. When I'm when there's a title that I'm really looking forward to, but the as the prices of these hardcovers go up, the number yeah. of hardcovers that feel essential to my collection is like rapidly plummeting because I just can't get there. Twenty seven ninety nine for a book I'm going to read 
once, maybe twice. Yeah. And like that's, I mean, per hour, if you amortize the cost of the book over it's each, a, yeah, right. no, over you're, each you're hour totally right, of enjoyment, yeah. you know, like this is how I justify expensive jeans because I'm mm-hmm. going to wear the expensive jeans a million times mattresses, before they fall mattresses, apart. Mattresses, right. Yeah, stuff but like yeah. it just... It's so t- I'm just I'm I'm going I'm going into my files here. So I'm, okay, yeah, I can, feel, I can hear. I'm just like, I'm just doing I'm just pulling off the shelf because I've got a couple of, I got a YA and a regular. Here. Careful! Is, last time Liberty did this, things fell on her head. This is investigative reporting. So I got the Sun is also a star hardcover right here. Nicole Yoon, right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. 1899. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. Um, Lab Girl. We both love. Yes. Um, twenty six ninety nine. Yeah, I'm holding a galley for The Eight Wanderers bucks. by Meg Howry, which is one of the big titles for March. It's like the thing that they're yeah. pitching this year as for fans of The Martian. 27 bucks for a debut hardcover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-uh. That, and in a way, I mean, the, what I guess... Whatever. The source of my anger is immaterial. <laughs> except to say that I think what drives me crazy is... Well, there's a lot of things. That, the, the, the logical inconsistency and the value proposition is one thing. But that there is a lot of room to experiment, right? It does mm-hmm. seem to me like if you've got it, I think charging $29.99 for the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child makes sense. You know why? Because the demand is there. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense to me. Right. And, and we, we were at a conference together a while ago, and we were in this um, – I still remember we were in this thing – you know, it was a small group kind of thing. And like the, the topic was, what if there were no money to be made in publishing? Right. Right. And you and I both said, you know, if the only way we could get a Toni Morrison hardcover was pay $75 for it, we would do it because it comes out five times, what, in our lifetime? Yeah. You know, as adults, like, it's just not that thing. But there's no fungibility in pricing to make things interesting. And ebooks has sort of allowed that. Mm-hmm. But what we get is... Fourteen ninety nine or two bucks. Yeah, like if right? you're, it feels like publishing actually needs to go more down the road of like, okay, yeah. if, you, if the justification for a young adult hardcover being less expensive is that it's young adult, which like that's a crappy value judgment. Yeah, that doesn't make, make any. I don't buy that. But, I don't like that. No, but there is unacceptable. Cal- like there is interesting calculus to be done about like here is a debut novel by yeah. an unknown name, but we think it could do well. And if your choice is like lots of marketing dollars, which very few titles get mm-hmm. or price it more competitively like this makes sense like perhaps your hardcovers are 17.99 21.99 when mm. you're starting off or you know trying to build demand and then once everybody loves you you can charge 27.99 yeah. for you can be George Saunders like plenty of people are going to pay 27.99 for George Saunders's first novel after right. a long and colorful and wonderful career of short stories like that mm. That demand exists, but like if I'm just the average book buyer wandering in my local store or Barnes and Noble, the like that risk of twenty seven ninety nine on a debut novel that you don't know mm-hmm. anything about. Oh no, it's like tough. from an author that you don't know anything about. Like that's it's just a risk of your money and it's a risk of your reading time. And they could, you know, mitigate some of that by dropping the price. And like well, it would, you know, yeah. there's all this weird feelings stuff, right? In publishing. So we hear about like 
that agents and that agents fight for things or that authors have their mm-hmm. agents fight for certain things that are illogical but entirely based on how the author wants to feel about their book deal. New York Times book review advertising. I mean, right. just throw one out there. Yeah, just one of those. Maybe well, that's just a thing. One. Yeah. Um, but we hear about all of this, and you can imagine if publishers started wiggling hardcover prices, there would be some feelings involved there too. Of like, well, what you think my novel is only mm. a nineteen ninety nine novel, and, and, and that their their pay is pegged to the percentage right. of the cover price too you can imagine and so like, like we'll make it up in volume publishing would have to like practice some transparency and speak mm-hmm. some truth that publishing is not historically comfortable doing but yeah. that's an experiment that i would love to see happen and if you were the flip side of it is if you could get over the ego piece of like i want my debut novel to be anticipated so hotly that everyone will pay 27.99 for it if they were like you know we'd really like to give you a shot to reach an audience right. we yeah. want you to be able to establish a good record so you can get a good second deal because we'd like to continue working with you we're going to price your novel at 19.99 in hardcover make mm-hmm. it very appealing let's see what it does like that is its own kind of gamble and its own kind of investment that a publisher could make in a debut author there is a way to spin that to make it you know it's not like you're not as special as George Saunders, except it's exactly as that you're not as special as George yeah, Saunders. Yeah, except that you aren't. <laughs> right. You know, it's, uh, and again, you know, I think it's kind of like what we were talking about with libraries and making them more or less available. And what maybe they maybe someone at some point did a thing and they said, we're, here's it, we're going to release some of these books as at 1990 or you know whatever price. What if we priced adult literary fiction in hardcover the same price we give to YA? What does it do to sales? What does it do? You, I don't think you and I have ever seen that happen in mm-hmm. our lifetime. Yeah. You know, in our in our, you know, the last six years we've been doing this professionally. I, I don't mind saying, Mm-mm. maybe it has been done before, but like, you know, it would make sense for a debut, an unknown author, or the beginning of a series that an author that you know, like Bloomsbury, someone's committed to a big series, like, right. or like uh, you know, Sleeping Giants. Make mm-hmm. the first one seventeen ninety nine, right? Like the first bite doesn't have to be free. No, no, no. <laughs> but I this mean, is not an untested way of doing business, right? Like the first right. one's on me. <laughs> yeah, no free sample. Yeah, yeah. someone had to invent that. I mean, it's crazy. Um, actually, I just was reading. I'm reading a history of uh, advertising right now. Of course happens. you are. <laughs> and the people who invented free samples were like snake oil salesmen. Huh. Yeah, which is not a surprise. What's weird is they would give a free sample knowing that it did nothing, and it still worked. Placebo like you effect. Would, you would well, yeah. You would think that you know you're really motivated to give free samples if the stuff is great. But the snake oil salesman, they just knew that people would buy it because of placebo effect and like you know perceived value and whatever or regression to the mean effect, and it worked. It, anyway, so I, I don't know. I guess that's the, the thing that really bothers me about it, is like there's there's such there's so those price points are so sticky, um, and no one seems willing to to mess with it. Like. I don't. I'm trying to think. Like, it, there's been a lot of really good um, debut novel. Like we pay a special attention to day by debut novels by win of color, just in book writing in general. Mm-hmm. Like in the back channels, where, like um, Ruby, Ruby by Cynthia Bond or The Turner House by Angela Flournoy. Those books got some buzz, but I wonder, like, if you could AB the universe is like we always want to do. What if they went back and AB tested where both of those were 1999 or 1899 or something? Yeah, like, what, or like, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe we're wrong, but we just don't know. Well, and like last year, there was Behold the Dreamers and Homegoing mm-hmm. and um, Here Comes the Sun that were like yeah. the three well, big. And the mothers. And the mothers, right. So yeah. four big debut novels by women of color that got lots and lots of buzz. I feel yeah. like equal amounts of pre publication buzz for all of them. Yeah, Homegoing, sure. it seemed, did like succeed in sales. 
sales. And I think the mm-hmm. mothers did pretty well. I mm-hmm. loved Behold the Dreamers, but I never saw it anywhere. And it didn't no. seem like it went anywhere. And so in this AB universe, like what if that one had been 1999? Um, yeah. and could Maybe it reached, would turn out. Like I'm not oh, saying that we know. You know like, neither the, of us saying we know for sure. Yeah, right? it's just an interesting. But what the, the other end of it is like I'm looking at this Beverly Jenkins romance novel that's on my yes. desk right now. That, yes, like yes. She is a powerhouse with a huge I was, I wasn't going to bring up romance. I wasn't going to do it. Well, let's talk about yeah. genre, though. Like in the in my particular example right now, Beverly Jenkins, powerhouse writer with a huge mm-hmm. audience. She she puts out a couple of books a year. Seven ninety nine in mass market paperback is the first and only format these books come out in. And is that is, right? They're not in Kindle from the start. Oh no, sorry, Kindle too. I meant like print. Like there's not like oh, a hard. Oh, there's not yeah, a hard. There's not cover. like a hardcover yeah, right. paperback. Then mass market yeah. progression, um, mm-hmm. which like for a big fiction title, if you publish like a, a work of general you know, literary-ish fiction, Mm -hmm. it's very uncommon for your book to make it to mass market paperback, to like have been so popular that they think it's worth it to do that. Romance, they just start there. And I assume Mm. it's because they know that the romance reader is worth so much sales money. That's a really interesting point. That they can charge only $7.99 per book and that makes it easier for romance readers to buy more books because they want to. They're very voracious and they're they're going to. But if you flipped it, like if this new Beverly Jenkins novel were $27.99 in hardcover, mm-hmm. what are they doing to romance readership? And so like what if like, like it's this, it's the truth of publishing that all of the commercial and genre sales underwrite the ability for literary fiction to exist with mm-hmm. the exception of a handful of your George Saunders, George Saunders, Tony Moore, and Donna Tartt, yeah. Tarts, yeah. Marilyn Robinson, the ones that are going mm-hmm. to sell a whole bunch, but, but like even still a successful Tony Morrison novel up against like one of the beloved romance writers, I think. Well, it would but be the a, power law effect has yeah. to work for romance too with Nora Roberts. Yeah. I mean, so that like, has to be What could you too. do for the, like if literary yeah. fiction is the thing that the publishers think is so important, like these, these are the art books, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Like we believe in the art of the written word. What, what if the new George Saunders book was seven ninety nine in mass market? Yeah. Like yeah, what yeah, if that you could get more people much, to read That it's it. a third as much. And the other thing I think we've talked about this on the show, like, the the production cost is like maybe two dollars more from yeah. a mass market paperback to a very nice high quality hardcover. Like that's another you know mm-hmm. open secret if if you've ever looked at it. It's like a nice beautiful hardcover doesn't take. It's not that expensive. Like you can go crazy and get eighty one pound paper. You know, and embossed covers. You know, like you can go all the way up. But in terms of like a hardcover, you'd recognize as a good hardcover. It's like two seventy five to print. Mm-hmm. A mass market paperback is like. 75 cents. So you get a lot of pricing power for that extra $2. It is interesting. I mean, there. I've said this before. To assume that the way the world, like the Voltaire's, like this is the best of all possible worlds, like everyone's got it priced appropriately, is probably the wrong, I mean, that's probably unlikely for that to be the case, right? Mm-hmm. Probably some other arrangement would optimize for reader enjoyment and publishing sales and author earnings and all these other things. But it is weird that you look at this continuum that YA romance, I guess in terms of pricing, is on the bottom, right? Because, you know, set, they come out, that's its flagship product. Is That's the expensive product, the mass market paperback. Like right. You buy a Kindle and it's less. Um, all the way up to twenty eight ninety nine for, you know, the Goldfinch and hardcover. Are those, it can't be the case without having anyone done testing that those are properly aligned, that just the historical precedent just so happened to be optimized for sales. Like, I don't know. Like, what, I feel like, 
I wonder, does romance ever do like for the Beverly Jenkins fan? Like, do they do a 500? Could they do, say, a 500 print run of a signed hardcover? And charge nineteen ninety nine. I feel like, like a premium, something like that I saw for collectors. One, I feel like I saw one romance title last year. And romance yeah. readers, like I'm, I read romance, but in a casual sense. So if you're listening to this and you have more examples, please let us know at podcast at bookriot.com. Um, but I feel like I saw one last year that it was coming out in mass market paperback and hardcover at the same mm. time. And mm. I just assumed that like that author got that because she was so popular, but also that the, I just made the assumption that the hardcover was a more limited run that they would have made fewer of them. I didn't see any marketing around like there's only 500 of these and they're signed. Mm. Um, but it seemed that the publisher's decision there was based on like some readers love this author enough to pay for this book in hardcover. Um, yeah. But I I can only recall seeing that once. Um, Though the economies of scale are printing are such too, it's like 500 for a hardback it still may not be worth I mean, to do big offset lithography, like yeah, and there, you need to you do know, a like, bunch. There are, other ex- there are some hardcover examples in romance now that I'm thinking of it. Like this is kind of an old example, but from my bookseller days, the J.R. Ward um, – Black Dagger Brotherhood series was really, really popular, and those came out new in hardcover. But then mm. they did the progression of hardcover paperback, mass market paperback. But they were like the demand was there, and it's almost like those readers paid paid the tax then of uh, you love this author so much, like we know we can get you to pay for the hardcover on the first. And I don't day. mind. I mean, to, from yeah. my point of view, I don't mind that. Like if I want to go see something in the theater. I pay 10 bucks for a Friday night or whatever. And if I wait long enough, I can get it streaming on streaming. Like, right. I don't mind that progression mm-hmm. at all because I feel like I can make a reasonable choice about it, you know? Yeah. Whereas uh, if I'm comparing a YA hardcover to a literary fiction, it's $8 difference for reasons. That's tricky. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it, it doesn't make any sense. And it's weird how sticky those price points are because hardcover, even as we've had more ebooks and audiobooks, like hardcover prices keep creeping up, you know? I yeah, I used to collect hardcovers in a you know very serious way like that was my you know kind of thing when I was in high school and college and I wouldn't mind paying nineteen ninety nine twenty one ninety nine but like 20, there's something I mean and and you don't see like I think I think like maybe the Goldfinch was like thirty two ninety nine or something mm-hmm. hardcover because it's a big old book right right um but it, it's inexorably creeping up anyway that that was a lot of follow up that turned into a real um, <laughs> let's uh, do. Deliloquy. Uh, uh, I don't know what the uh, dialogue. Uh, about <laughs> Let's go that. with deliloquy. Yeah, deliloquy. I'm sure that's uh, that's right. Shakespeare. That's, that's a thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said it. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, let's do some uh, newsy follow-up yeah. quickly. As we saw, and as many of you saw, judging by our Twitter timelines last week, yeah, uh, the book that shall not be named has been canceled by Simon & Schuster uh, after a video of the author appearing to condone pedophilia was uh, released widely. It's been available, I think, online for a long time, but someone did the thing that mm-hmm. happens where they dug it up and it got wide notice and publicity. Um, so now we know where Simon & Schuster's line is. Racism, misogyny, mobilizing people for harassment is totally fine if they can profit off of an author, but pedophilia like, is the bridge too far. I agree that that should be a, an uncrossable bridge, but now we know where the line is um, of what they're not willing to profit off of, or at least what they don't want to be associated with as we can, as you can hear i have no generosity no I, I don't either i mean i guess when the high road is blocked and you're offered the low road mm-hmm. you take the low road you know <laughs> i mean I, it's a part of me wonders if they were looking for a way out you I know mean, i mean I, we sort of I, 
we were well, we were talking about like when they delayed it so yeah. that uh, so that supposedly he could add information about all the controversy mm-hmm. over it. But I was not, and I, I'm still not willing to give them credit for a wanting away out. Like no, this, I'm not like, trying to give them credit for anything. Like, but maybe that you know if they got offered the ejector button. That really mm-hmm. no no one's crying free speech stuff now about this, right? right? Which is doesn't make it right, but like the 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 defenders have evaporated. Of like, yeah, let's hear the other side. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and like is, he had to resign yeah. from his job. Um, right. I think that I wish that I thought Simon and Schuster were looking for an ejector button, but also mm. if that's the case, there were plenty. There are plenty oh, of no, no, things uh, yeah, to yeah, object yeah, yeah. to before you get to condoning pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Um, I just so, don't know. I mean, I, it's so weird. Like, can the CEO of Simon and Schuster just over? I guess they can just override the editor at one of the imprints. They they mm-hmm. can. They just didn't choose to because, like, the line was, and it was a very sort of lawyer's trick thing to say. It's like. We will not publish hate speech, right? Like whatever's going to be in the book, we're at least okay, we're at least okay with that existing in the world. But hate speech, we're not okay. But the imprint has full editorial control. So, like as I said before, that's a well. Wait a minute. There's a Venn diagram you could draw in which those two things can't be true, mm-hmm. right? Because this is not hate. Sp- I mean. He, this is not this is not what he said in this video is not something that was going to appear between the covers of the books. Right. So the letter of what Simon and Schuster said about why they were going ahead with it, nothing that came out violated that. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing here is just this was the public turned on him and people mm. that had been supporting him and crying free speech were like, okay, well, this thing that he's saying is indefensible, not for free speech reasons, but for m- moral reasons reasons and so we're not going to well, defend criminal, him frankly i yes. mean uh, yeah i yeah, mean that's we're not the going other to, piece of yes it too. we're not going to defend him at all anymore and when even mm. like it's like when even the white supremacists will not get behind you yeah. <laughs> to to buy your book um i like i frankly i think that simon and schuster concluded that it was no longer going to be a profitable endeavor that this author's base had turned against him and uh, like the pre-orders that they had made on amazon would be canceled uh, and that bookstores were not going to be willing to carry this mm-hmm. book anymore. It wasn't going to be marketable. So this was no longer a money-making endeavor for them. And they decided to get out. Um, because I, I do want to hang the people with the rope of free speech that they, they shouldn't get the book taken away. Because if you're okay with this and you right. weren't before, it's not about free speech. Right. Right? I mean, if, you, if you're now like, yeah, he shouldn't have lost it. Well, now, this is still deal, free speech. Well, this having, is he's still... Yeah, this, having I mean, a book deal or not having changed. a book deal is never about free speech. No, but that's what I mean. But people are saying like, but this nothing has really changed here except that he said something that's like criminal in a different medium. Right. right? Now we know a new thing about his character. Yeah, but it's still the same argument could hold if you really were arguing like his agent was in Publishers Weekly that, you know, we should be on the side of free speech and let's hear him out and everyone blah, blah, blah deserves a thing. Anyone who said that then and isn't saying it now is tacitly admitting that it was never about free speech, right. because the free speech argument could still hold water if that's the if that's the hill you're going to die on, right? But mm-hmm. nothing has really changed. The guy, st- this is still free speech, you know. 
So I just can't hear it anymore. I can't hear anymore that it was about free speech. And if you were calling for the book and saying, you know, Simon Schuster, really, you should pull this. You don't want to be in this business. And this is not a good thing to do. And people were saying, well, but free speech and you're in censorship. Where are you now? Where are you now when you were arguing that before? Because the boat is still there and it's you and that guy. Yep. You just decide to get out of the boat, even though it's still you would the free ste- the USS free speech is still steaming away. You just decide <laughs> to jump off. Yeah, and that makes me crazy. Makes me crazy, and I'm I glad. Know. I mean, yeah, I hated it came to this. I'm glad this thing isn't going to hope. I hope no publisher, even the 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 crash and publish and burn and try to make as much money off mm-hmm. of filth. You know, someone will probably you know if he wants to. Uh, I still think he never wanted to write the book. That's kind of where I am. That this is never going to happen. Yeah, he I mean, wanted the platform the, and whatever. He's in the him business, yes. and he now. Well, I mean, I do think that this is he's shot himself in the foot. Like he wanted a lot of publicity. He he wants to be a controversial figure. He it's kind of like he's kind of a Kardashian of this world now. Mm. You know, like they're famous for being famous, and that's not to say that those women are not smart, good like very wily clever business no. women but they are famous Paris, let's call, he's the paris hilton of publishing now like he's famous for being famous or now he's controversial on purpose mm-hmm. and it just so happens that there's material out there that he has spoken that is too controversial for even his base that loved him for being controversial and so mm-hmm. now he made his bed and he gets to lie in it and there was an interesting follow-up piece that we'll just link to in the show notes from entertainment weekly where they talk to some publishing insiders about what might happen with this book um do you think anybody else is going to pick it up will he mm-hmm. have to self-publish it if he wants it to exist in the world that's a really interesting question uh but and it we can't infer like one reason that he would or wouldn't like it might not be worth it to him to finish writing this book if mm-hmm. he doesn't get the big payday for it but if he cares so much about what he has to say oh, yeah right. he might self-publish it and then there's some interesting comparisons to the oj simpson book because when if i did it mm. um, was supposed to come out publishers didn't want to touch it ultimately like that's i think that's a wrong or not the most useful it's uh accurate without being precise mm. <laughs> you see what I did there. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that uh, a lot. <laughs> comparison here because that like the OJ book was very toxic and an industry insider in this Entertainment Weekly piece is saying that this book is considered even more toxic than the OJ book in terms of how likely or not it is that a publisher will pick it up. And but also OJ, less and like, less less lurid. I mean, the yeah, o, I mean the OJ well, thing is like that's a well, huge that, I mean it's, the OJ it's a crazy ended and I'm not yeah. It ended up existing. I don't remember all the details, but I, I watched either. the thirty by th- uh, thirty. Uh, 30. Yeah, 30 for 30, whatever it is, the yeah. OJ documentary this past summer. It ended up eventually appearing in the world because the Goldmans had something to do with getting it published, and then they took a bunch of the profits from it as sort of oh, their... Oh, right, because the civil... He was liable for right. the civil suit, so for any money OJ made off the book actually came back to them. Right, and which they had weird. something to do with getting the book published. Weird. Um, which is, it's all very... That's very... <laughs> I think, I mean, they let him hang himself with his own rope there, too. Um mm-hmm. But it's interesting to make that comparison. I don't think it's an, it's kind of the only comparison that's available. So I understand that, like, let's talk about a toxic public figure publishing a book, but it's really not a precise comparison in this piece. The rest of the speculation is interesting though, if you, if you want to go down that road. So we'll put that entertainment weekly uh, link in the show notes for you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, what else are you going to say about it? Like, 
I'm glad, glad it's, it's not over. out. It's not glass out in the world. I mean, like it's, let this it's over. be, I guess, a lesson learned, hopefully, for publishing that there there are businesses that you don't want to be in and people that you don't want to be in business with. And if you get in bed with a guy like this, by the time you finally yeah. decide to cancel the book, the damage has already been done. Like when, when Simon and Schuster canceled this deal last week, I actually found myself like more up. I had been upset about it, but like mm. more upset than I previously had been because it was like, okay, if you're just going to ride this out and make money off of him, like mm -hmm. I've accepted, you're never going to admit that that's what you're doing, but whatever. Like, well, like, I think that's I said on the last show, do, like in a way I kind of right, respect like, the position of, you know, it's a free country. We can publish whatever we want for money. Right. I'd be like, well, I, had, I disagree, but at least that's your, I had you gotten know. my head around right. that. Like, this is just the decision that they've made because they're willing to do this horrible thing to make money off of him but it was like oh there is a line but like having being reminded of like there is a line and like pedophilia is on one side of it for simon and schuster but like rampant misogyny and racism and harassment are on the okay side of the line for them to still be in business with someone um really <sighs> that really got my i was like you know what maybe i'm not ever talking about a simon and schuster book ever again well and the other like, thing too is like when the outcry came i think we mentioned this when it first happened is like we we were saying we were saying I think on the behalf of people that were having similar reactions to us is like we don't do this for Rush Limbaugh or Bill O'Reilly or people that we really disagree with politically right yeah this like is we, not this, just a conservative we, we, we were saying figure. this is a different beast than that like this is not that this is something right. else and either Threshold and Simon and Schuster didn't know that or didn't care or what but like people were throwing up alarm bells saying this is a different thing than a right wing, you know, kind of within the pale conservative for whatever you want. Because again, we are liberal. Most of like literary publishing, the publish people that work in the big five, like most of them are liberal, whatever. And so I can, you know, whatever that's matters. But that we, I think I even said at the time, you should, it should mean something that mm -hmm. this is not something that happens for Bill O'Reilly or Tucker Carlson right. or Megyn Kelly or whatever. Like this is something else. This is, this is a different kind of thing. And that they didn't see that, and they didn't do any oppo research, right? They didn't mm -hmm. clearly figure out that this is really something that could blow up. Because, like, when when this video came out, none of us who were, were worried about this, were, were upset about this, were surprised. Yeah. None, we're like, yeah, the, the guy's a turd. Of course, there's some poop around here. This is nasty stuff. He's a nasty guy, and he's a and he's a, a terrible guy. Um, so that I think that was something else that publishing could learn from is like, if you see an kind of outcry like that, it's not just reflexive liberal, whatever stuff going on necessarily, because it's a difference in kind, not in degree. Yeah, sure. There's not a boycott of whoever publishes Ann Coulter every yeah. time she gets a book deal. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Or, you know, Bill, Bill O'Reilly's um, killing president X or whatever, you know, right. whatever the thing is, this was a different thing because I think anyone who lived online had seen anything about this guy knew this was a different kind of, human mm -hmm. um yeah. and beyond the pale of what you know any reasonable publisher would want to be worried about um all right so uh, we hope never to have to not talk about him again right i'm looking forward to never not saying his game his name I'm, again i will here. we failed to not give any of the details away but i'm proud of us for not ever having his name in our yes. mouths and we got some angry i got an angry email about someone said well you know you're doing reverse advertising streisand effect and i think i said i don't care well, and also, like, if you're hearing all of this and you want to go buy his book, yeah, 
stop listening to the show. Give us right. one star on iTunes. Get out. <laughs> right. Right. Just get it yeah. over with. Just get it. Just get <laughs> Let it, over it all out. Um, uh, let's see. What do we want to do? Let's Sponsor see. Madison Reed. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about Madison Reed, Jeff. Well, you know, you don't always have the hair color you want. I, it's true. It's just it's just like in publishing. This can't be the best of possible all possible worlds. It cannot really be the case that at all times you have exactly the right color hair you want. Funny that uh, Madison Reed is a new company that's completely changing the hair color industry. It gives you a better option whether you color at home at the salon or or both. It's the first ever at home color that gives long lasting gray coverage out many of the harsh ingredients found in other hair colors like ammonia or PPD. You, you'll notice the difference right away. There's that. There's no chemical smell that comes along with it. You get that shiny hair anyway, um, and it's really soft. Your hair will be really soft as well if you have it. Uh, it, it sounds nice. I like the well, sound you, of that. The presence of hair is necessary for yeah. the hair Step to be zero. soft. Yeah. Step zero is have hair. Have hair. Um, the color is rich, multi-tonal, natural looking. Their reviews are full of really happy clients saying good stuff. So you can go look at reviews um, or better than what they get at the salon, all for a fraction of the cost and time of the salon. They have a love guarantee. So if you're not completely loving your hair, uh, presumably after you visit their product. I can't just write them right now and say, I'm bald, Madison Reed. What are you going <laughs> to send me it. for that? <laughs> Fix it. Their staff of licensed colors will send you a new color kit on them. And if you're still not satisfied, they'll give you your money back. No risk, all reward. So go to madison-reed.com to get your perfect shade. And if you go today, you get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the code BOOKRIOT. That's all one word. Madison Reed, madison-reed.com. Offer code BOOKRIOT. Go there now. Also be a link in the show notes. For you, thanks for them to sponsoring the show. We got time for like two more stories. You want to talk uh, about America's Dad? Let's talk about America's Dad real quick. <laughs> Wait, hang on. I'm Tom not, Hanks. Tom Tell, Hanks. Oh yes, tell me about America's Dad. America's Dad. Tom Hanks. I was like um, America's Dad. Tim Kaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, close. Um, two uh, monosyllabic names. Uh, Tom Hanks. I I think we may have talked about this a million years ago that it was either announced or whatever, or there's a long article. Tom Hanks loves a typewriter. Apparently, didn't he do something with a typewriter, like an iPhone app that turned oh, that's the keyboard into yes. a typewriter? Yes, 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 yes. It was like the, the it was the Hanks font or it whatever was like it was. The hipsterest iPhone app yeah. ever. He's releasing a book of short stories that he has written on typewriters about typewriters basically. or they all they all include oh, typewriters tom hanks bless your nerdy yeah, heart I, I mean and he's been i guess he carries around a typewriter with him on all of his junkets and his shoots and he's been riding in and around his movie shoots and all the other things that are that that i can only like tom hanks there's people out there you know are busy it seems like tom hanks has to be one of them right he's always yes. in the movie he's producing a movie he's a directing a movie like so he's lugging around his typewriter and he finds moment in his trailer or his hotel room or whatever and to write these stories and it's like you know, Tom Hanks probably has plenty of money. I don't, I'm not sure he's writing a book of short stories about typewriter for the payday. Well, nobody's getting rich off short stories anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so but so this is it's a labor of love. Um, it sounds like it's coming out from Knopf. I think in October. Uh, I lost the title. Where did it go? Here, darn it! What did I do with it? Did I not put the? Oh, here it is. I, I didn't put the link in the thing. It's called Uncommon Type. Um, <laughs> So there you go. Oh, I, mean, oh, I don't know. I, I've always been a I've always been a Tom Hanks fan. I, I like typewriters. I, this isn't this. I'm in, I'm interested in this. I feel like when this comes out, you're gonna like watch Sleepless in Seattle. And... No, no. I'm sorry. That's you've got mail when Greg <laughs> Kinnear goes off about his Smith Galactus Deluxe. I was getting there. I just thought you needed oh, to have oh. like a multiple Tom Hanks. Movie oh, oh, moment. oh. I, I thought you were talking about typewriters. You're talking about Tom Hanks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. True. No. And yeah, then yeah. then you've got mail. 
And mm-hmm. then you can settle in for like the most Jeff of moments with your Tom Hanks. Which short story I was collection. trying to think of a movie in which Tom Hanks is typing as a character. I couldn't think of one. I couldn't oh. think of a of a Tom um, Hanks, uh, you know, actually using the typewriter movie. Yeah, Robert Langdon never really has typewriter no, moments, does no, he? No, 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 no typewriters. Um, and uh, yeah, and you've got mail. It's Greg Kinnear that types yeah. on the typewriter. Uh, anyway, so that's coming <laughs> I out. Hope, I hope our inboxes explode with like the one gift that exists somewhere of Tom oh, Hanks on a it. typewriter. No, there's him typing the, on computers and you've got mail in other places. Yeah. I can't think of a typewriter. A typewriter, uh, yeah. Yeah. I can't it, either. You would think it'd be like that thing Seinfeld apparently did in the TV show where like in every episode of Seinfeld, like you can see Superman somewhere, like on a book oh, cover. Oh, seriously? I think that's I think that's a real thing, or I, I dreamt never knew it. That. But either way, I'm still using his example. <laughs> that you'd think like Tom Hanks in all of his shows, like there has to be a typewriter somewhere in the frame, like on a couch, like or little on a catalog, East, Tom or a Hanks, store, a Tom yeah. Hanks Easter egg situation. Yeah, a little Tom Hanks Easter egg. So that that's uh, coming out. Just that's well, just for fun. That's while we're talking fun. about the most American of yes. things, the Mall of America. Yeah, we got to end on this. I think I think that's <laughs> the end of our show today. The Mall of America is looking for a writer in residence. So weird. <laughs> Which, like, there have been some other creative ones. Last year, Alexander Chi turned a Twitter joke into an actual uh, writer's residency on Amtrak, where I think he had a sleeper car for like a week or two. Right. right. Um, provided to him on Amtrak to ride around the country on trains and write stories. Um, so the Mall of America, like, it, this is part of their 25th an- uh, anniversary celebration. It'll be 25 this year in 2017. And they think it is crucial to capture how much the mall has evolved over the course of the 25 years. So they're giving the job to a writer. The writer in residence contest will give a special scribe the chance to spend five days deeply immersed in the mall atmosphere while writing on the fly impressions in their own words. Uh, the contest winner gets to stay in the attached hotel because this is a mall that has a hotel attached mm-hmm. to it. <laughs> receive a $400 gift card to buy food and drinks and collect a generous honorarium for the sweat and tears they'll put into their prose. So this is like, you know, more for the glamour than the money. Um, but very entertaining. And what is the movie where Tom Hanks gets stuck in the airport terminal? terminal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I saw somewhere else Tom Hanks for this. I saw somewhere else that it it does include a $2,500 honorarium for the week. So, you know, so you get a little cash on there. That's good. Um, Apparently they own whatever you write. So that's part of it too. It's too bad David Foster Wallace isn't around. Like this is the David Foster Wallace of all possible things. Like I'm trying to think if, if we could pick somebody to do this for us. Yeah, I'm thinking about that now. Karen Russell would be interesting. Hmm? Karen Russell, don't you think? Oh, Karen Russell would be interesting. Uh, Colson Whitehead? Oh, Colson Whitehead. Well, yeah, yeah, exa- yes, yes. Because Noble Hustle is kind of the same premise just with the poker tournament, right? Right. Like you go do something kind of gauche and Americana-ish and gaudy. Uh, gaudy, gaudy. Uh, gaudy isn't a, a Spanish architect. Um, I'm trying who else, who else would be who would be particularly good at this? Like Maggie Nelson would be yeah. pretty interesting Yeah, I mean, George Saunders this. would be great at this. Um, yeah, George Saunders would be good at this. George Saunders. Yeah, Colson Whitehead's pretty good. Yeah, I think that Colson Whitehead is my first seat for this job. Nelsing. <laughs> it would be amazing. Anyway, uh, so if you want to go, if you know, if you want to go, we'll put a link in the show notes. You can apply. Yeah, it doesn't say you have to be fancy no, or no. anything uh, to apply. So you should. Oh, you know, pro- of our of our writer friends, Kevin Wynn would be so good at this. Oh, he would be really good at this. Yeah, that's a really um, good example. 
Uh, and you can temple. read his work online at GQ. GQ. He's the deputy uh, online editor. Mm-hmm. If you want to know who we're talking about, he's great. He's been on this show. A he was guest on the show a million yeah. years ago. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. Right. And last summer for the best books of 2016 so far with me. Um, you know, uh, Mallory Ortberg would be great. <laughs> yeah, like if the toast could resurrect yeah. itself and then collectively get this writer's residency yes. for a week. Staff, or, you know, freelance contributors for the toast have, <laughs> right. a, have a reunion from all of America group residency. Now <laughs> I like, want someone to write that story. I, know, I don't like actually want to see that. I want to see someone write the fictional version of that actually happen. <laughs> I was say like, or if the toast and Grantland could both come back to life, yeah. have or the a baby. editorial staff at Reductress would be really yes. good at this too. That would be really yeah, fun. Yeah, that would be. There's okay. So this is a thing that exists that we are amused by. Yeah, uh, barely adjacent to the world of books and reading, but but you can do it. So if there uh, were people, I think, taking bets about whether or not we'd actually talk about this. I'm going to give you the over, but just mention it briefly because we got to get out of here. Uh, discovered no- novel by Walt Whitman. Ah uh, yes, I'm just. It's out there. I'll put a link in the show notes. I, I can't. I can't muster the care to talk about it. Except I thought I, I had to mention it. Like yeah, and it's, it's Whitman. He's your boy. It's just barely. People are wondering: is this? Is this? Does this pass the um, the Nazi witch library? Like that was our oh. old threshold. Like it has to be the Nazi right. witch library. <laughs> an un, an un. I mean, a serialized pre Leaves of Grass Whitman novel just. Squeaks over the line, I think, to warrant mm-hmm. to mention. So it's there. Right. And it had been published, right? But anonymously. Yes. So it's not like the book had never existed. The work has existed, just no one knew it was Whitman. And the most interesting thing is that Whitman, who was one of the great self promoters of the mid 19th century, even he didn't want to claim this. So you know it was. <laughs> you know it was a, you know Man, it was a weird book. He would have been so interesting on Twitter. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> Before seriously. you break your brain, we should end this show. Yeah, let's get out of here. Thanks to uh, Madison Reed. Um, thanks to Third Love. Go take that survey if you have five minutes. Tell us about yourself. It really does help us get more sponsors, but also, you know, the, the sponsor reads you hear us do might speak to you a little bit better, you know, if we have a good sense of who's listening to the show. Um, you can f- always email us at podcastatbookriot.com. Send us, you know, comments, questions. Um, ebook pricing, travesty, screen caps, whatever um, you've got in there. Uh, whatever, whatever you need to do. Yeah, and then also if you want to ask us a question for our 200th episode, um, you should should do that as well. Better Living Through Books at bltb.fireside.fm. There'll be a link there. Go join us if you'd like to. I got some very nice emails from people saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm listening, I'm listening. Yay. So thank you so much for that. Um, and we'll talk to you guys later. Yeah, have a good one. Mm-hmm.